Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo Saranto Suchedo Yevlahudi San Meao San Putoshi. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it, Within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master and Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. Uh, my name is Hung Shur. We're here in Berkeley, California, and this is uh, Saturday night, August 11th, 2012. We're looking into the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra's 10 grounds chapter. We're on the third ground, and... Uh, I would like to invite you to join me, please, in inviting the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka Assembly to draw near and to bless this assembly. You'll find the name here on the front cover of your sutra. We'll chant that.
Turn, please, to page 62 and 63. I should say before we begin that we're going to end tonight at 9 instead of our usual 9.30. Uh, Many of us will be up and on the road tomorrow to uh, our summer retreat in Oregon, and we need to uh, get a very early start. So we'll uh, end half an hour earlier so folks get more time to pack and to prepare. We're down at the very, very bottom of the page, the last line. Here we go. Lihan 佛子是命菩萨。佛子是命菩萨。第三发光地。第三发光地。Okay, down at the bottom again. Here we go. Back on page 63. This bodhisattva, this bodhisattva among the four dharmas of attraction, emphasizes beneficial conduct. Among the ten paramitas, He emphasizes the paramita of patience. He does not fail to cultivate the others, but only does so according to his power and proportionately. Disciples of the Buddha, this is called the Bodhisattva's third ground, that of emitting light. Okay, we have been moving progressively through the third ground out of ten. This is the the part of the sutra that talks about how bodhisattvas practice, real awakened beings, how they cultivate the way. And it's kind of a handbook. It's an instruction manual for somebody who wants to imitate that practice. And we've come to the very end of the third out of ten, and it's summarizing. So this is the... Uh, the wrap-up of the practices that have come before. And it says, This Bodhisattva among the four dharmas of attraction, benefiting things that help others, are, uh, what does it say, um, are emphasized. This is what he, he does this more. There's more of this practice than the others. Um, so here's a list. This is one of the, um, the set of practices that some scholars think made up the Buddha Dharma at the beginning. Um, there's a theory among scholars that the Buddha Dharma was not uh, a body of teachings. It wasn't this set of things that the Buddha passed on. It was 
Uh, I didn't say that right. It is, in fact, a set of things that the Buddha passed on. He didn't call it the Dharma. It was, oh, if you want to practice the way, if you want to go from ordinary person stuck in samsara with no choice, uh, and you want to leave that and reach nirvana where you have choice and freedom, then here are things you can do. This is, these are ways to do it. And you can choose from column A or from column B or from column C, kind of like choosing from a menu. And that over time, all these many lists of practices that the Buddha himself mastered, accumulated, and then passed on, uh, became known as the Buddha Dharma. And so that's an interesting idea. And it's even more interesting when you put it in the context of what we call religion. Um, there are many religions around the world that require you to agree, that require you to confess, uh, to um, testify to, to commit uh, to. And once you do that, once you join, you are a member of that religion. Buddhism, by contrast, is not that way. It doesn't matter whether you say you agree with the Buddha or that you um, want to officially call yourself a Buddhist. None of that is important, is as important as picking up these lists of practices and progressively putting them on like shoes and walking the road in those shoes for a while. Putting them on like clothes and seeing how they fit you and matching their shape. So this is one of those lists. In fact, we get two of them. We get the four dharmas of attraction and we get paramitas. Two sets of these mother lists, they're called. Um, So let's look at that first one, the four dharmas of attraction. What is it? Um, The Buddha arose, the Buddha arrived in India at a time when there were many practices available, lots of schools, lots of teachers, lots of ways of practice. And some of those teachers were extremely successful and popular and had hundreds or thousands of disciples following them. And the key then was to find a teacher you liked, to um, follow your brother, follow your father, uh, follow your neighbor, follow your clan, and go join Uh, and follow that teacher and do what he did and and practice the way he he taught. That was pretty much the standard. Um, How did one teacher get more disciples than another? Mm, Word of mouth, probably. Uh, Reputation, miracles, stories about uh, people getting healed or people being able to realize different states of trance or dhyana or uh, strange um, powers and abilities. This is how how teachers' reputations get spread. Um, The Buddha actually told his disciples, do not show unusual abilities. If you have psychic powers, for example, supernormal skills, don't don't talk about them. Um, Instead, we have a sangha. We have a community, and it's based on seniority, um, it's radically uh, socialized, that is to say, everybody wears the same thing, 
Everybody eats the same thing. Everybody gets the same benefits. No one uh, gets any, any better treatment in the Sangha regardless of how you were born, whether you were part of the, uh, one of the Brahman caste or whether you were, uh, in fact, an untouchable, an outcast. So this was the radical community that the Buddha, um, the Buddha created. And interestingly enough, it's still going strong. 2,500 years later, this Sangha is still intact with the practices and culture uh, nearly identical to that of the Buddha 2,500 years ago. So how did you, how did the Buddha's Sangha grow? One of the ways was through bringing people closer. And these are the four sanctioned, authorized, official ways to do that. What are they? Four dharmas of attraction. Four ways to bring people in to hear what the Buddha was saying, to uh, try on the practices yourself. What are they? The first is giving, generosity. So everyone likes to be given to. Everybody likes to receive things. And if you share food with someone who's hungry, then they'll, at least for the space of the meal, they're there. And they might listen to what you say. At least they'll take a look at who you are. How do you live? Um, so giving is the first of those dharmas of attraction. So generosity is, is a, a standard um, icebreaker. This is the, the first way you connect with people. Um, so generosity is the first of the four dharmas of attraction. The second one in Chinese is called ai, literally loving words, kind speech, talk nicely. If people like your sound, if they feel a kinship with the, the, your tone of voice, with, so the external appearance of your voice, even before you get to the content of what you say, they might stick around and listen some more. If they also like what you say, that the, the things you say agree with them, then they'll, they'll listen to some more. They'll, you've got them. You're, you'll be able to, to uh, create good ties with them if they, if they like what you say. If those words are kind, if your tone of voice is, is harmonious and gentle, then people are likely to want to hear more. So the second of those uh, gathering in dharmas is called loving words, gentle speech, kind, kind words. The third one is called collaboration, tong shi working together with someone. If you can cooperate, if you collaborate, if you help them out, you say teamwork works best. People like that. There's, there's a, a joy in, in sharing effort and accomplishing something with somebody that you can't do yourself. So that's called uh, collaboration, cooperation, tong shi. So working together with someone. And then the fourth one is this one, which is called Doing things that help, benefiting, um, literally uh, beneficial practices. So things that help people. Find something that uh, where someone needs some help, or clearly this is in their favor, and people will come back because they we among the all the relationships we have in a lifetime, we remember the ones who help us out. So those are the four. Generosity, uh, pleasant words, kind speech, 
collaboration, cooperation, and things that help, helping out. Um, the other way to translate that fourth one is called service. So I, I think that's really a good, a good translation. Service. Do things that uh, people remember because before you did it, they needed help. You performed that deed at the right time and things went better. You served them in a wholesome, ingathering way. So those are the four, the four dharmas of attraction. So again, it's generosity or giving, kind words, collaboration, cooperation, and service. So it says, among the four, this bodhisattva emphasizes service. Um, he or she is in uh, the third, uh, the third ground, the third stage, and we remember that this is this corresponds to the third of the paramitas. So patience. Among the ten paramitas, he emphasizes the paramita of patience. Paramita, people know that word, I, I trust. Uh, why did we translate a Chinese sutra into Sanskrit? It's because the Chinese translator kept the Sanskrit going. Notice what does it say? Shi bu lo mi. Bu lo mi is not a Chinese word. It's Sanskrit, paramita. But the translator kept the Sanskrit because um, this again is a list. This is one of those uh, collections of practices that have an identity as ten. In this case, um, they're a set. There are ten of these things. Paramita has two translations. One means to go across. Think of a, a bridge or think of a ferry boat. Something that you're on this side and you want to get over to the other side and in between is a river or is a bay. There's a brand new ferry service, I understand, going from Alameda to, uh, to San Francisco and from Alameda to uh, the peninsula. They've, they've opened it up recently and to uh, alleviate the, uh, the, the rush hour traffic across the bridge and also BART. And it's really inexpensive, and you can take your bike. Uh, so I was talking to somebody the other day who was commuting to work. They live in Alameda on this side of the bay, and they're commuting over to uh, Redwood City, or I guess so, and uh, they ride on their bike. And they ride the bike down to the ferry, jump on the boat, enjoy a wonderful trip across the bay in the morning with the fog, and, and then get off the other side and ride to, uh, ride to work. So what a wonderful uh, way to go. That ferry takes them across. So it's paramita, cross to the other shore, daubian, reaching the other shore. The other translation of the very same word, and if you look in the, the sutras and dictionaries, it's a toss-up how to translate this. The other translation of this is perfection. Something that, that reaches fullness, reaches perfection. So when we see the paramitas, when we see the, the word in the sutra paramita, sometimes we translate it as the ten perfections, sometimes we translate it as the ten ways of crossing over, the ten ways of getting over to, to the other shore. I think classically, um, Traditionally, when we hear about paramita, we think of uh, this shore here is birth and death. Here is where we're born, where we live, we get old, we die, and we're reborn. That's this shore. 
If we stay here, that's for sure going to happen. We get old and, and illness overtakes us and we die and come back. And where we want to go is the other shore, which is nirvana. So nirvana is a place where suffering ends. That samsara, the rebirth that happens here, ends on the other shore. How do we get there? Well, it's tough because in between is this river of trouble called affliction. And afflictions are, those are our old friends. We have all kinds of afflictions. Everybody has a different set, a different share. Things that trouble the body and mind. Things that weigh down on your spirit. Things that make us afraid, make us angry, make us depressed. That's the flow of affliction. So how do we get across? We need a a method. We need a way. We need a boat, a ferry boat. We need a bridge. So the paramitas are that. That's the way from samsara across affliction to the other shore of nirvana. So the Buddha gave us these six, usually there are six paramitas. Here, because this is the Avatamsaka Sutra, there are ten. So we have these ten ways across, ten perfections. And the, it's interesting because they, they appear always as like antidotes. What's an antidote? Antidote is like a medicine. If you have a headache and you want an antidote to the headache, take, used to be growing up an aspirin. That was the day before Tylenol and before Advil and, and the very powerful analgesics, the pain relievers that we have now. Back in the day, we took two aspirin. And the aspirin um, would be the antidote for a headache. And the headache, take two aspirin, wait a bit, the headache goes away. So the paramitas are given like a medicine to counter the illness. For example, if the illness is stinginess, the illness is I'm surrounded by stuff. I have lots of stuff and I don't want to share it with my sister. I don't want to share it with my brother. I want it all for myself. That's an affliction, stinginess, not willing to give. So the Buddha said, ah, If you're stingy in this world full of stuff, your heart's not going to be happy. You're going to feel everybody you know, your friends, your brothers and sisters are kind of a danger because they might get the stuff that you have. So he said, that's not the way to live. That's not an open heart. So what's the antidote? The antidote is generosity, being generous, giving, sharing the good stuff that you have with your sister, with your brother, with your friends, with your family even with people you don't know. So just that simple act of sharing is a joyful thing. You cross over the affliction of stinginess, being unwilling to share, by practicing the paramita of giving. So that's how they work. The ten are all given like antidotes. And this is interesting, so we can test it out. There's a restaurant here in Berkeley that... um, it began, actually it began in India, but the second one called Karma Kitchen was set up here in Berkeley. And uh, some of us who were here tonight were there when it first began, the first, the first night, the first day that Karma Kitchen began. And how is it set up? It's set up with the idea of giving as part of the meal. When the meal is over, you get your bill, like any restaurant, bill for the food that you ate and the service given you, and what's the, what's the price on the bill? Zero, zero, zero. Right? Zero dollars, zero cents. 
The food was no charge. Now, you think, well, how does that work? Does the restaurant give their food away? Well, not exactly. It's not exactly like that. They say, here's an envelope. Whatever you feel you would like to share so that somebody else can have the experience of eating here, please leave in the envelope. No amount is too little. No amount is too much. So one penny is not too little. A hundred million dollars is not too much. Feel free to practice generosity so that other people can eat. And just that simple shift of you gave me food, I give you money, I bought the food, now we're even. To shift from that to, wow, that was a delicious meal, I feel really well, I feel good and fed, and the idea that someone paid for my meal, and I would like to help someone else eat because of my generosity, it makes all the difference. So people say that food at Karma Kitchen tastes very Special. There's a special seasoning on that food, which is generosity and goodness. It tastes really different. And that idea that I'm paying, I'm making lunch possible for someone else creates an atmosphere of sharing, of uh, goodwill. And because of that, that uh, simple attitude, Karma Kitchen becomes like a, uh, a garden of giving. So people will uh, spontaneously give a song after they eat. Other people bring crafts that they made at home to give, put them on a table. And the, uh, the maitre d' or the waiter and the waitress will come along and say, oh, by the way, this was left here by someone who made a pair of gloves. They knitted gloves. These are for you. Oh, you go to lunch and you come home with a pair of gloves lovingly knitted by someone else. Or here is a handmade book that they wanted to share. Or this person left uh, a bushel of uh, homegrown tomatoes and they want you to take three of them home. So it becomes a whole gift economy, an entire economy based on generosity and an open-hearted, open-handed spirit. So what a great idea. You know, it's uh, the gift economy manifested. Now, Karma Kitchens have sprung up in Washington, D.C., in Chicago, Denver, uh, I think Los Angeles, and uh, they're, they're now part of the landscape. And it's all based on this notion of the joy of giving. So those are the paramitas. The second paramita is precepts, otherwise known as morality or uh, ethical conduct. And what it crosses over is an unprecepted life. That is to say, a life that, instead of following principle, uh, follows desire or selfishness or whatever, whatever, dude, the feeling of the moment. And when I was growing up, I would have said, so what? It's much better to live according to one's passion uh, than to try to follow some sort of somebody else's form of ethics, somebody else's laws or rules. Well, I grew up in a world that celebrated cowboys and James Bond as the way to be uh, an adult male. And uh, 
if you're feeling great and if you're ki feeling kind and good that day, then the ethics of whatever dude, I'm feeling good today, that's fine. What about the days when you're feeling not so good, when you're feeling angry or pissed off or upset? Well, then you follow whatever dude, and you wind up beating people up. So the unprecepted life leads to social breakdown, leads to brokenness among families, among friends, among society. I'm feeling like killing a couple people today. Okay, well, whatever, dude. No rules, doesn't matter. So that's an unsuccessful foundation for behavior. If you look at the founders of religions, uh, let's say Jesus of Nazareth, following what? The Ten Commandments that came down uh, from Mount Sinai. Moses brought them down. Four of them echo exactly the Buddha's five precepts. They respond, correspond exactly to Patanjali's yoga aphorisms, one of the founding texts of Hindu practice and faith. The Holy Quran, uh, the founding text of Islam, has the very same uh, four basic rules. No killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, or no uh, adultery, and no dishonesty, no lies. So here we have founders of most of the world's major religions all, in, all agreeing that there is a basic moral standard that not only makes the best people, but it makes the best nations, the best world. So there we have the paramita of ethics that crosses over uh, unprecepted, dissolute, wild, selfish behavior. So you get the idea, right? We have paramitas, practices that are giving to to counteract uh, their opposite, to cross over their opposite to the other shore. So among the ten paramitas, this bodhisattva emphasizes the paramita patience. Okay? Now, usually we get six. There are usually six paramitas. There's patience, there's uh, giving, and precepted moral behavior. There's patience and vigor or strength. Virya, the paramita of uh, strength. Then there's samadhi and prajna, concentration and wisdom. So we have giving and morality, patience and vigor, concentration and wisdom. If you think of them as pairs, it's easy to remember those six. And when we get to 10, this, this sutra, our Avatamsaka Sutra, always does things by tens. And it adds the paramita of strength, the paramita of vows, the paramita of uh, knowledge, jnana, as opposed to wisdom, and the paramita of expedient means, skill, skillful methods and techniques. So most of the Mahayana Buddhist world will give you six. In the Avatamsaka, there are ten, ten perfections, ten ways across. Um, interestingly enough, in the Theravada, in the Pali world, barami, right? Barami would be translated as? Perfections. 
And it's, it's a, you say this person has a lot of barami, meaning he has a lot of goodness in him, skill. Yeah, and Thai. Is, that, is it Thai or is it Pali? Okay, so the Thai, in the Thai Buddhist tradition, borrowed from the Pali, someone has a lot of barami, which is obviously paramita. And it talks about somebody's qualities. This person's got a lot of goodness, a lot of skill. They're, they're good at being human. And uh, so they're heading towards perfection. So among the ten paramitas, this bodhisattva emphasizes patience, the third one. Um, this is one of, one of the most wonderful dharmas to talk about. And we could do an entire uh, evening's lecture on the perfection of patience and still not exhaust it. If you were patient enough to listen, you could, we could go on about patience forever. And in the, um, uh, one of the, the best chapters of the Avatamsaka is the story of the pilgrim, Sudhana, as he goes to 53 teachers learning the Dharma. And when he gets to the teacher that emphasizes patience, it's really unique story. It's a woman. She's a woman, the teacher. And uh, Sudhana comes in to the room where she's teaching, and there's nothing there. There's a bench or a little low table, something like this table. And the teacher comes in. She's wearing white robes, no jewelry, no makeup, no headdress. She's just as natural as can be, wearing a white, plain white robe. And she has a, uh, is it a lamp? A vase. She's got a vase, kind of like this. Just a little vase. Or it might, might even be like a, a vase with a handle, something that pours. So, like a pitcher. It has a pitcher, plain pitcher. I always thought of Ali, uh, Aladdin's lamp, but... Artists do it differently. So it's a plain vessel. And it doesn't look like anything. It's small. There's not much. And so Sudhana, our hero, comes in. And he says, uh, Great Sage, I was told that you could teach me how to walk the Bodhisattva path and how to practice Bodhisattva practices. Uh, I would love to know what you can teach me. She says to him, good man, she says, have you made the great resolve for Bodhi? She says. And Sunna says, what's Yes, I have. I made the great resolve for Bodhi long ago. She says, excellent, very good. Sit down and I'll show you my door of liberation. And she waves her hands over the, the vessel and suddenly from the heavens comes a sky full of wonderful treasures, the most wonderful incense, the most fragrant flowers, the most exquisite candles, robes made of silk adorned with beautiful filigree, the most beautiful furniture, dwellings, uh, houses with gables, verandas, pavilions, musical instruments just pleasing the gods in the heavens with their sounds, clouds of these offerings. The most beautiful things rain down. And of course, Sudhana is going, wow, look at that. Where did these all come from? She said, good man, without exception, these all came from 
the paramita of patience. There is nothing that does not flow forth from patience. And Sudan is like, boy, I want to learn this Dharmador. Please teach me how to do it. So she says, very good. I'll teach you. So then that, that practice opens up. So there's this moment when, you know, the smallest of vessels brings forth the most ornate and beautiful of, of material goods. And then she goes on to teach him the, not only the wonderful stuff with, with uh, shape and form, but also these jewels of internal treasures, such as being able to endure, being able to wait. And uh, certainly Master Hua, our, our uh, teacher, said that the only thing that allowed him to teach Westerners was the perfection of patience. Renru Bolomi. He said things like, he said, teaching a rooster to lay eggs, that's hard. Not as hard as teaching Westerners the Dharma. <laughs> teaching the, having the sun rise in the West, that's hard. Not as hard as teaching Westerners the Dharma. You can do it. You can make the sun rise in the West, but teaching Westerners, that's really hard. He said, patience. It takes lots of patience. So, he said that's all he used. That's all he had in the end was patience. So, um, you can see that uh, as Sudhana, his chapter in the Avatamsaka symbolizes, there's nothing there. It's just this simple little pot. But from that pot comes everything if you can use it if you can really use patience. So, um, that's, uh, that's the paramita of patience. So let's turn over. Can you turn to page 64, please? 64, 65 in your sutra. It says, Ren polo mi pindo yu fei bu xiao dan sui li sui fen. Um, it's not that he doesn't practice the others. He does. She does. But he does so according to his strength and according to what is appropriate. I would really translate the English differently. It's that um, the other paramitas also get cultivated, but it, some of them require more strength than others. Some of them are more appropriate to this bodhisattva or another bodhisattva. And this is really key, I think, in um, explaining something about the Bodhisattva path. Um, as the Sutra says, the third ground Bodhisattva cultivates, so too should we cultivate according to our strength and according to our fun. fun. Now, what does that mean? It means to who you are. You should cultivate, we should cultivate according to what's right for us, right? Um, I um, have run into people, and not so much in this country, but certainly in Taiwan, the place that I'm most familiar with. I know folks who um, uh, are, you can't fault them for commitment. They're really committed. You can't fault them for vigor. They're really vigorous. They have a lot of strength and they work really hard. But you can fault them for lacking wisdom, maybe. That kind of sounds hard, but it's true. That is to say, if they had more wisdom, they wouldn't take on practices that are not suitable to them. Um, 
we had, uh, there's a, a Dharma friend who lives in Kaohsiung, and uh, I won't mention her name because she's known to some of us. And she mm, had more vigor than wisdom, I must say. Uh, she loved to take on practices that were not suitable for her. For example, she heard that the monks and nuns were eating one meal a day. And so she said, ah, I understand that Master Shrenhua encourages everybody to eat one meal a day. Well, me too. You know, and had I been there, I would have said, wrong. He encourages his left-home monastics living in the monastery, having taken a full set of precepts to eat one meal a day. Not everybody. And let me see. You have four daughters. Is that right? Well, yeah. You have a full-time job, right? Yeah. You have a husband who's very hard to subdue, right? Yeah. Yeah, he is. That's it. And, uh, you, you know, you are eating one meal a day. Well, sure. That's what Master Shrenhua recommends. Leaving the part after the comma, comma, for his left-home monastic disciples. You know, so what does she do? She determined that she was going to eat one meal a day because that's the way she wanted to cultivate. And the result was, guess what? She was going around all day long feeling tired, feeling out of gas. And as a result, she got angry a lot. And her daughters knew, and her husband knew, and her friends knew, that she was angry once she started to cultivate this practice of eating one meal a day. And you know what they said? They said, man, the Buddha Dharma ruined our family. Oops, right? No, the Buddha Dharma didn't rule your, ruin your family. It was your mom who was so stubborn that she wouldn't take the monk's advice and decided that she knew better. And so she never quite ate enough. She ran out of gas about 4 p.m. and would start scolding people because she, you know, she felt bad. When, if she would follow instructions and eat a little more, you know, like maybe a little bit of breakfast, maybe, or some dojiang at night or something, the Buddha would not be unhappy to see her eat enough fuel to drive her car through the day. But instead, she followed what? Wisdom? No, stubbornness. In fact, if you want to interpret it harshly, she was competing to be known as number one lay cultivator, best dharma protector. That's maybe her motive, which is what? Not a good motive, right? That's, a, that's competitive, that's fighting. Fighting for what? For fame, right? Not bright, not recommended. But sure enough, she refused to... She, that lay woman, I, I've known her for so many years, and I must say, she's tough, she's strong. She, has, she can endure a lot of pain, but as a result of missing the middle way, which finds balance and harmony between extremes, she missed the middle way, and as a result, chased her daughters away from Buddhism. They correctly identified what gave her mother so much trouble and affliction was her cultivation. And that was their experience, right? When mom ate one meal a day, she got mean. So clearly it was Buddhism that made their mother mean. They didn't want that. So they went off to get baptized. Ooh. So it's like, Mom, how's that working out for you, Mom? <laughs> not only did she not become number one, she also made her family unhappy. And so 
Had she said, you know, Dharma Master, maybe I'll eat a little more. <sighs> Thank you, you know. Please do be normal and get happy in your practice. It's not the case that the Buddha wants us to suffer and only then are we cultivating. Not the case. If we don't have enough strength to get through the day, we should be a little more normal and eat enough, right? Already, let's check it out. If we are following the Mahayana way of of diet, then we're, number one, not eating meat, right? We're going to be eating in a way that doesn't take life. So, good, that's already taking a whole bunch of, quote, uh, normal diet items out of the diet. Um, Some of us are vegan, so we take away dairy. Uh, Many of us are, of course, we don't eat, consume alcohol or cigarettes or things like that. So pretty clearly, I mean, at this point, our dietary choices are really kind of narrow. If then you cut the amount so that you go around never filling your stomach, then how can that be the middle way? How can that be appropriate? So when you lay it out that way, there's hardly a reason to be a lay person and eat one meal a day. Now, unless you are living in the monastery, following the monks and nuns in their practices, your day involves lots of meditation, lots of contemplation, then you can try reducing the amount you eat. But if you're in the world, clearly you need enough. Cars don't run when the gas tank is empty. So fill the gas tank with harmless, plain food that doesn't excite your taste buds and uh, just drive your car down the Dharma road, following the middle way. You'll definitely get to, to the states of Samadhi and wisdom. So anyway, that's the, the idea of Sui Li, Sui Fun, according to your strength and according to what's appropriate, your share, right? So she followed a notion that somehow she could, uh, you know, create energy out of no, no fuel. It didn't happen. And she got results she didn't want. So I think this, this story applies in many cases. Sui Li, Sui Fun. What is your strength? How strong are you? What is appropriate for your situation? Cultivate that way, avoiding extremes, and your dharma body will grow fat and healthy, plump and strong. Disciples of the Buddha, this is called the Bodhisattva's third ground, that of emitting light. That's the name of this third ground. And this is the summary sentence. We're, uh, if you flip over to page 66 and 67, you'll see that we're very close to the, close to the uh, verses that, that summarize, that repeat the repetitive verses, which give our, our third ground a unique flavor. Any, any comments or questions about this section tonight so far or anything to date? The four dharmas of attraction, the ten paramitas, sticking to the middle way, avoiding extremes. Ajahn Buddha.
considering doing something to sort of step to the music mm. side. And mm. Right. Ajahn Guna said it's sometimes it's, it's uh, useful and helpful to reflect on which paramitas we are strong in, which ones we are weaker in, and could use some boosting of. To, to do that, it helps to know what they are. And uh, they, again, if you think of them in pairs, it, it's helpful. There's actually uh, one of the chapters of the Avatamsaka, it talks about the paramitas as uh, giving the analogy of uh, of a city, um, and it's a it's a a uh, ancient city with walls around it, and it says that uh, giving and precepts are the foundation. They're the uh, what the the city is based upon, and so here in the paramitas, so giving and morality, precepts, character, virtue, all different names for that second one, that's really what sets, what starts us out in cultivation. Uh, the first practice for so many of the other lists of practice is giving. And once we decide we're going to, um, to walk a spiritual path, one of the best ways... To, to do is to, to look at the material things around us or the invisible, the non-material things that I, that I hold, my wealth. So I give away or share the, the, the things of my life, maybe food, something that I share a lot of. I, want, I find a way to, to feed friends. It doesn't have to be a lot, but it needs to be mindful and steady, a kind of sharing. If it's immaterial things, what else can you give? You can give kindness, give courage, give kind words. So you know people who are depressed and you listen to them. You give your time. You give of your time to people who need to share, who need to talk more, people who need encouraging. You give an invisible but real gift of support encourage. You start giving. That's a way to make the foundation of your practice. And then, so having created these connections with people around you through generosity, through benevolence, then you work on who I am, my character. So instead of killing and fighting, I yield. I foster life. Instead of greed or stealing, I share. I'm generous. Instead of adultery or sexual misconduct or promiscuity, I support relationships. I help people stabilize their relationships. And I'm not, uh, I'm not promiscuous. I don't use sexual desire to, to harm people. So instead of dishonesty, I'm good. I'm as good as my word. I practice what I preach. Instead of intoxication, I increase people's clarity and wisdom and sobriety. So we think, yeah, yeah, that's all, the sh that's the foundation, that's the goodness that keeps the, the, the base solid. So our verse said, right, giving and precepts are the, 
the foundation. Um, then uh, the next pair, vigor or patience and vigor, are the walls and the ramparts of the city. So what does that mean? The walls and the ramparts of the city, you think of an old city that, you know, you, where do you go? You ever been to Quebec? Quebec City in, in the province, the Belle Province de Quebec, right? The citadel there, the, the, the old city, it's a walled city. And the, uh, those ramparts were there to what? Keep, it, it defines the boundaries of the city, so it keeps people in, and it also keeps things out, keeps the enemies out. It didn't work so well for General Montcalm and, you know, uh, who else? Montcalm and Wolfe. Wolf, General Wolfe in Montcalm, the great battle of, of the citadel there. But you can still see a walled city right there in Quebec. Famous battle. Uh, but the idea is that patience and vigor are the walls of your practice. If giving and precepts are the foundation, then patience and vigor keep you up, keeps your practice not only uh, strong, but it keeps it vigorous. It keeps it going. And a large part of practice requires you to keep moving when you don't want to. Right? You don't feel like meditating that day. But you guess what? You get out and meditate anyway. You don't feel like being nice to grandma that day. But you know what? Because you know that's a good thing to do, you go ahead and be nice to grandma anyway. You don't talk back to her and you don't give her attitude. Right? Don't give her that face. Why? Because you are patient in your practice. You do it even when you don't quite really feel like it. nice to your sister, right? Because that's your practice. You're practicing being nice to your sister. And the bigger part is you do it with strength. You do it just enough. Not too much, not too little. You keep it going. So those are like the ramparts of the city walls, says our sutra. And then the last two are what? The last two are samadhi and wisdom, concentration and prajna, samadhi and prajna. And what are those? Those are the jewels that the city, that's the wealth of the city. Those are the jewels, the treasures that the city walls protect. So if this is our, you get the analogy, I'm referring to this verse in another part of the sutra where it says, among the six perfections, there are, there's the foundation, there are the walls, and then there's the treasures of the city that, that, is, that are held in place. So a cultivator uses giving and precepts as the basis of their practice. It kind of gets us established in the spiritual path and connects with others. Then the practices that we pick up, maybe we're meditators, maybe we're working on, on speech, trying hard to speak well, not speak badly. Our mouth karma is getting uh, cleaned up. And so what do we do? We're patient and we're vigorous. We decide we're not going to use four-letter words. We're never going to swear. That's our practice. Okay, so what do we do? We do that patiently and vigorously. And then as we get established in that practice, what do we have? We have the ability to quiet the mind, and the ability to see through the surface to the heart of every situation. What would that be? Patience and our, our concentration and wisdom. What are the jewels of our practice? Well, how about if you can never get angry? 
That's a treasure. That's the miao zhong zhi bao, the jewel within the, the wonder. Is this ability to what? Situation comes up. Do we get upset? Do we get angry? No. We see, oh, it's just that. I've seen that before. It's no big deal. Just do this and it's over. No problem. Right? That's wisdom. That's real wisdom. And what if it's in your face? What if somebody's scolding you, swearing at you, calling you a name, pushing your button? You go, nah, I got angry before and it didn't work. This time, no. If you're trying to push my button, that's because you're upset. It's not my fire. This is asbestos. I don't get angry. I don't get catch fire. You're on fire. That's okay. I am fireproof, right? And if you do that, if you can really hold on to that stillness and purity, that's a treasure. And it's the perfection of samadhi, right? This is the samadhi paramita. Uh, this is the dhyana paramita. Chan bolo mi. The dhyana paramita. And why can you do that? How is that possible? It's because you see through the surface right to the heart. It's only that. It's just somebody being upset and taking it out on me. They don't want to do that, but they couldn't be patient. And so you don't blame them. That's all right. No problem. And it's over. If you can do that, often the person who's so upset is just, wow, okay. I just felt so bad, I'm sorry. They might even apologize for getting so upset at you because why? You didn't catch fire. How do you do that? You have this jewel of wisdom that sees right through the surface. Pretty amazing, right? To be able to put out a fire. If you can do that a lot, you can stop a war. Ah, and I think most of us are, when we get upset, we're just hoping somebody will be the adult and will show us that it's no big deal. If we can be patient, we get through the gate. So that's on the personal level. When it's interpersonal, it's the perfection of dhyana. Chan bolo mi. The dhyana paramita. And prajna paramita. So those are the jewels, right? So as Ajahn Guna said, um, take a look and find which ones were short in and which ones need more work. And if you think of them in pairs, kind of, oh, that makes sense. Uh, so, we've got the foundation is giving and precepts, the walls of the city, you could say, the structure that holds us up and keeps us safe and also keeps other things out, uh, our patience and vigor or strength, that's kshanti and virya, renru, jingjin, those two perfections, and then the, <coughs> the treasures inside the city that are, we're guarding our concentration and wisdom. So, how useful. What a wonderful way. Now, if, let's look at these six. If we are cultivating in the mountains, living in a cave, out in a hut, in the forest, then who cares about all these interactive uh, perfections? Patience, vigor, concentration and wisdom. We never see anybody. We're not involved in crossing other people over. So the perfections are maybe not as important as stillness and insight. So sometimes people cultivate different dharmas. I cultivated silence for six years. I didn't talk for six years. So 
what's the need of skillful speech if you're never saying anything? But that time is over for me, and it's very important that I learn to speak skillfully. So equally, as you say, according to what your strength is and what's appropriate, the bodhisattva is out in the world. Here's a bodhisattva who is surrounded by relationships, relationships of spouse or partner, relationships of siblings, brothers and sisters, friends, your students. If you're a teacher and your students are always pushing your button, wow, how tough is that, right? If you're uh, working with colleagues in the office and uh, people are upset a lot because they're always under pressure, they're always tired, somebody leaves your team and now you have two people's work or three people's work where you only had one before, Boy, do you need these perfections. Do you need these paramitas? Because you're every day involved in relationships. How important is it to be able to hold your temper because you are practicing the perfection of patience? The kshanti paramita, renru polomi. So these dharma doors, these perfections are given for uh, people who are surrounded by relationships all day long. They're priceless jewels if we can do it. And here's the sutra saying, yep, this is what bodhisattvas do. These interpersonal practices. Is the Buddha Dharma philosophy? Well, it's got philosophical elements. There are uh, principles that include cosmology and, and uh, the coming into being of world systems. But the Buddha Dharma that Master Shen Hua gave us was all about living in the world. These are dharmas for use. They're like shoes. You put them on and walk in them. They keep us going in the world. Um, as, uh, as he said, these, the Buddha Dharma is uh, a, a handbook for behavior that you can't do without for even a minute in the world. So that, that makes sense to me. That's how I was taught it. That doesn't deny the philosophical elements, but it puts it in perspective. These are practices for, for getting through the day and then getting through the night when we're alone with our own thoughts. So, um, more comments? Thanks for that comment. It's, it's true. It's just, we need to look at and see how we need to grow in the paramita. Okay, more more comments, more ideas. I'm going to uh, offer a song at this point. And I have a brand new analogy coined this evening. The perfection of patience is the thread that holds our beads together. The beads are the other practices. As I was reciting just now, it went 
and all my beads are now a handful of beads. As beads, they're not as useful. Right? One, uh, two, three. They're much more useful on the string. And I am so grateful that they pop tonight instead of tomorrow on the road to Buddha Root Farm. Right? So you can have patience as a bead string. Luckily, I have another. And this is one of those strings that you can't see when it's fraying. It just popped. So it's so nice when it pops in front of you on the floor, on a blue carpet. You can see all the beads. When it pops in a dark movie theater, not so good, right? <laughs> in your car, oh, no, I think we're short one. Oh, no, down between the seats. Oh, no, where's the flashlight? Right. So think of the perfection of patience as the bead string that holds the other ones together. Let me recommend that you check your string of beads, right? Inspect it every now and then. Otherwise, have a couple extras because they're going to break at the least opportune time. So I wanted to share, this is a song that many of us know, but it's um, certainly, it's She Carries Me, one of, our, one of our favorites around here, because it talks about Guanyin Bodhisattva. And Guanyin um, perfected all the paramitas, cultivated all the paramitas to perfection. mentioned that this is tune is being played on a guitar made in 2008 by somebody who is here tonight whose hands fashioned out of wood and steel this wonderful musical sculpture and Fabrizio is usually listening from British Columbia but tonight is here with us so She carries me, she carries me, paramita, thou be on to the other side, across to the other shore. She is a boat. carries me she carries 
Now, um, we talk about these practices, and it's a, it's a different way of being alive spiritually. It's a different way of, of having a spiritual practice, spiritual, um, that's the word we use, being... Uh, pull that one back too. I'm 
choosing my words. Um, when you set foot on this bodhisattva path, as I understand it, it's kind of like mm, starting out with something. What do we have in our, I'll try again, third time through, start over. Um, what do we do in, in this culture? We diet. We try dieting. I know uh, people are on, sometimes people say they're on lifetime diets, afraid of gaining a pound, right? Or we think of the swimsuit season, and so we decide we're going to diet in February, so we, we look thin when we want to put our swimsuit and go to the beach in, in June. So uh, we diet. What else do we do? We go to the gym, right? We get a membership at... Uh, at the local health club, and we decide we're going to take up Stairmaster or a treadmill. Um, what else do we do? Um, if you're surrounded by vigorous people, you might decide you're going to jog. So you get a pair of uh, barefoot shoes and try, try jogging. Um, some of us might decide that we want to... Um, pick up a hobby. So for a hobby, we um, uh, go birding. We want to watch the birds, and so to go birding, you have to put on some uh, waterproof shoes and get out in the wilderness, get out in the wilds and watch the birds. So it's something like that. We adopt a practice that requires uh, application. You've got to apply yourself. You have to give it time. And you have to actually do it. That's the, the word that I was aiming for. Because practice, the Chinese word is xing. To, to walk is what it originally meant. Um, as a verb, we travel, we walk. And this very same Chinese character, I'll show you how it's written. There it is. Right? You like my penmanship? It's uh, the Chinese practice, it, when it's done as a noun means uh, a practice, something that carries you, a walk. It's the way you walk. It's a set of behaviors that involves the body, for sure, and ideally, the mind as well. If you understand how to do it, sometimes you only need the mind. You don't need the body. If the practice involves not doing something, not getting angry, not using profanity, not gossiping, for example, not being greedy, so these practices don't always have shape and form. Sometimes they're just a change of mental behavior. But whether it's a physical practice like jogging or an a, uh, invisible mental practice like refusing to gossip, for example, um, it requires some sort of start. You have to start. I'm going to start this practice. I'm going to do this practice again. I'm going to keep it up. I'm going to give myself a challenge to change my behavior. Because why? Because number one, the Buddha recommended it. Because number two, I, my sister started doing it and she's a nicer person now. Number three, because something in my mind told me, now's the time. Now's the time. So I'm going to change and actually do it this way. So we xing. We 
do it. We start to practice. We change our behavior and walk this way. Uh, and the walking, this, this character that I facetiously showed you written on my hand, it's, it's a really beautiful character. It's two feet. It's footprints. Left, right. Left, right. Hip, right. Left, right. One, two. Like that. And we practice. We walk that way. We travel down the road on the practice. And so it involves, you know, footsteps. You have to actually put one foot in front of the other and move along with the practice. So I'm introducing it in this way because, number one, you have to do it. You have to actually do it before it's the practice, before before anything changes. However, because it's the Dharma that the Buddha recommended, if we do, things change. We go down the road. We travel in this new form. And it's, uh, it's quite a contrast from the spiritual lifestyle, from the religion that I was raised in, which works for most people, but didn't make sense to me. And it came... Uh, it came to dramatic contrast when uh, bowing on the highway, which is what I, I did with the other with another monk for, for many years. Uh, I was engaged in a practice, which is bowing, and I was doing it by the side of the road, which put it on, you know, it was visible to anybody who wanted to stop and watch what I was doing. And without much exaggeration every single day we were challenged by people who interpreted practice a different way Um, people would come up and say you can't work your way to heaven don't you know that in this case it was God but it could be any deity don't you know that God sees your practice as nothing but filthy rags do you think you can work your way to heaven you only get saved through God's grace. Almost every day. People would come and remind us of that that perception, that way of thinking. And that at one point would have made sense to me, but having understood cause and effect, it didn't make sense to me. That practice was not going to yield the results I was looking for. What made sense to me was only through actually doing something did anything change. It was only through actually practicing that that I was going to travel. If I didn't left, right, left, right, shing, the two sides of that character, if I didn't put my footsteps on the ground, I was going to be the same old person I always was without much difference, maybe worse, if I kept on killing, stealing, lying, lusting, gossiping, slandering, scolding, swearing, you know. So it, it involved actually changing. And body, mouth, and mind had to go into a different, had to embark on a different course if I ever expected to get anywhere. So um, one time, uh, Master Shenhua, uh came out to, to see us and he said, how's it going? How's it going? And I said, wow, sure, we're, we're going through uh, uh, 
it was the central coast. I think it might have been Lompoc or Paso Robles. And Lompoc is a cowboy town. It's right there on the central coast uh, near San Luis. And, and uh, a lot of cowboys, a lot of folks who run cattle ranches and where, where people are engaged in, in uh, uh, agrarian pursuits, the mind tends to be more conservative often, not always, but often. So there were lots of uh, very conservative folks there. And I said, well, sure, fool, you know, we're getting preached at a lot. We're getting proselytized a lot. He said, oh, oh, what do you say? You don't fight back, do you? And I said, sure, fool, I'm not talking. He said, oh, good, good. That's right. That limits your ability to respond with a clever repartee, doesn't it? Yeah, he said, yeah. He said, uh, so he turns to Marty and he said, well, what do they say? He said, you can, we said, what do they say when they, when they tell you that, that Jesus sees what you're doing as filthy rags? You can't, get, you can't work your way to heaven. Marty says, gee, I don't know, sure, fool, you told me not to fight. So I often just kind of like let it go, you know. And uh, Sherva says, that's not good enough. He said, you should know the right thing to say. Wow, sure, for, you know, fighting back? No, 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 no. You want to teach him, don't you? Okay, yeah. What should we say, Sherva? Sherva said, okay. He said, I'll be you, bowing. And you come up and you challenge me and I'll tell you what to say. Wow, okay, role-playing with our teacher. Cool. <laughs> so Sherva says, okay, I'm bowing. You come up. So Marty comes along and says, you can't work your way to heaven. Don't you know that Jesus sees what you're doing as nothing more than filthy rags? And Shrifu said, thank you. I'm happy. I bow because I like to. He said, what can they say? He said, that's right. I guess that's right. What can they say? He said, you try it. So, so, so I challenged Marty. Marty said, uh, thank you for helping. I, I bow because I like it. I'm happy. There's nothing more to say. So that became our standard response. I bow because I like it. I'm happy. So, okay, good enough. So uh, that way at least there's no fighting. And you don't have to, you know... Now not talking outside, did that mean I didn't talk inside? No, I actually bowing. I've, I don't want to tell you some of the things that came to my mind as these people were hour after hour preaching to us, with sometimes with quick-draw Bibles, Bibles in holsters, <laughs> like a six-gun. Matthew 4.13, you can't work your way to heaven. Got him. <sighs> you know, just like a gunslinger. You know, boom. Quick draw Bibles, no joke. The holster was well used, you know, because they were practicing, getting, you know, egging each other on. Well done, brother Juthper. You know, well done. You know, well killed. You shot him right. That was quick. So, anyway, so mind you, the ones, the people who interpret spiritual practice this way are many, many fewer than the folks who believes that with all their hearts that bringing other people to their way of thinking is doing God's work. You know, bless their hearts. You have to assume that their motive is good, that they want everyone to believe the way they do because that's what they were told, that getting people to, to accept their way of thinking is, is right and wholesome. So uh, I 
uh, used to be part of that. And now my way of seeing it is different, which is to say that if I'm ever going to change, I have to do things differently. I have to talk different, act different, and think different. So the change that I want to make takes the Buddha's description of a Dharma practice. Do it this way, and actually you will cross over, paramita. You can reach the other shore using the raft, the boat, the bridge of the Dharma to go from confusion, selfishness, ignorance, attachment on this shore to awakening, to wisdom, to liberation on the other shore, selflessness. So that's what the Xing, the Heng, the practices, that's what they're all about, taking us across. And you have to start them, you have to continue them, you have to conclude them with work over time using generosity, morality, patience, vigor, concentration, and wisdom. And for sure, we reach the other shore. In between is the, the doing, the stepping, the walking. And sometimes when it gets to be all too much, she carries me to the other side. Guanyin Bodhisattva and the other Bodhisattvas, including specifically Samantabhadra, Bodhisattva of great practices, he uh, lends a hand. If we can come up with 49% of the effort, he will give 51 sometimes, I said. All right. Now, um, we're going to stop tonight at 9 o'clock because of the uh, big travel that we have to do tomorrow to get to Buddha Root Farm in Oregon. And uh, let me give us give our uh, announcements at this point, and then we'll transfer merit. This coming week, Dashing Fasher will be in charge of the monastery and the practices, the, the classes will be the same as our regular summer schedule, which is a much lighter schedule. Um, the, yes, Dashing Fasher? Friday night not? Okay, Wednesday, I correct. Only Thursday. Okay, Thursday, the only, right, our regular summer class, thank you, is different because Thursday night will be the only weekly class. Thursday night, the Spirit Rock, uh, James Barris group, will be meeting at 7.30 as usual. Um, our Wednesday night walking meditation with Ajahn Guna and the Friday night uh, Song of Enlightenment meditation cl- class with uh, uh, Dashing Fasher will both be suspended for the week, uh, temporarily off. When the next Saturday rolls around, we will be back here, given that we made it down from Oregon in time. And with uh, every year we've been able to do that, knock on wood. So we'll be back here with the, uh, the next paragraph of our text at 7.30 uh, on Saturday night. So those of you joining online, whoever you might be, please do continue. We're, uh, all things considered, we should be right here ready for the next chunk of the Avatamska. Okay, morning, yes. Okay. All right. 
So morning and evening meditations will be on as always during the week. And the Saturday morning repentance and Pumanpian not, right? That's the Dabe Chan next Saturday morning. So Saturday morning is not. No. Okay. So next Saturday morning, no activities. But yeah. Um, Saturday evening lecture will be the will resume everything will be back to the regular summer schedule. Okie doke. Those of you going to Oregon, we know want to be here tomorrow morning, ten minutes before six, because we're going to try to try our best to get uh, get on the road by six. Drive safe. Drive safely. Drink tea. Drink tea. Drink coffee. <laughs> Not at the same time. Hallelujah. Okay, so on the last page of your, uh, you don't have songbooks, on your chanting sheet, the dedication of merit is there, and I'd like to invite you to extend the measure of your mind to include, oh, by the way, are you able to go, you going to Oregon? No, they didn't invite me this time. Really? No kidding? Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? I'm not sure. Okay, well, how about if you watch the door? We need a good lion, somebody courageous, fearless, mm, far-sighted. What else? Uh, kind-hearted. What else? Mm, uh, a, a, a vegetarian. Oh, come on. Yeah, really. Well, okay. Uh, I guess that's me. I'll, I'll do all that. I thought you would. You're a good lion. Lion-hearted, right? Good Leo? Yeah, that's me. Okay, good. So you watch the door, and uh, uh, you and you keep an eye on Dashing Fasher, and he'll keep you safe. That's a deal. I don't speak Italian. That's okay. He speaks English. All right. Oh, good. All right. Mm. Yeah. Benvenuto, Cellini. Yeah. So, okay. There we go. Right. Well done. All right. So, hill lions are really reliable. But they have a soft spot, which is flattery. All right. So, uh, make a wish. Send it out with your heart where that place where all minds touch and make a better world.
是道之进，非道之退，在善而从，不善而改。See you next week.